Well, thank you, Charlie, for our song today, and we're grateful, Gail, for our prayer, and we look forward to the opportunity of studying from the book of Acts, and we're looking at the first missionary journey. We're in Acts chapter 13 and chapter 14, and uh, we had considered last time the uh, death of Herod uh, in Acts chapter 12. We had spent some time studying about that. If you're following along at home, please find your Bible and look and follow along with us as we study uh, from this historical book of the New Testament. And uh, we're looking at uh, the picking up of John Mark in verse 25. That's in in chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And so even though we remember how God had rescued Peter from the uh, incarceration of Herod, and the impending death of Peter. He had put James to death already, and it was very clear he's going to do the same thing for Peter, but God saved him. And we see that he went to the house of uh, uh, Mary, and that's what introduced us to Rhoda and John Mark. John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. We remember Barnabas as he was one of the son of consolation, and he was one of the disciples of the Lord who had gone to the city of Antioch to preach the gospel. And so he was helping the church there. He took Saul with him, and they had gone there, and they had been working there in the congregation at Antioch of Syria. Now we're going to learn in chapter 13 about the first missionary journey, and there are going to be three of these. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who's called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Notice in this instance he's still being referred to as Saul in this uh, passage. This would be Herod Antipas that we're talking about. Notice on verse 3, Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So the Holy Spirit has decided, verse 2, that they should uh, be the ones that are sent. Uh, we talked a little bit about the word sent. We talked a little bit about the word apostle uh, last time. We see how that they go to um, the island of Cyprus. And hopefully, though my luck with this is not good, I will see if this works. And it did. Now, I don't know if you can see that or not. Now, when I hunt the Internet, I look for one word, free. And that's what this was, free. And so I use this. I thought, I will copy and paste this, which is about the depth of my computer skills. And so we see, let's see if I can point out something of help to you. You see that little green dot right there? That's going around Antioch of Syria. Syria, this is this area right here, Syria. Syria is north of uh, Israel, of course. Over here, the Taurus Mountains. And they're going to go to this island called uh, Cyprus right here. And they're going to land here and preach their way all the way across the island till they get to the uh, western side of it as Paphos. This place is really in the news now. I'm talking about Syria. Syria has had a, a civil war for the last 10 years. The Assad regime is in power there at Syria. Uh, Russia backed uh, the Assad regime. Um, I hesitate to get into all of these matters because it takes me off the point over here on this area. Now I'm talking about more modern times. You have the Kurds. 
There are millions of Kurds that live there. The Kurds want their own land. They want their own country. Of course, to do that means that this whole section right up in here would be lost because here you have Turkey today, this whole section, and you would have uh, this southeastern corner of Turkey lost to a new country for the Kurds, so the Turkey people don't want to do that. The Turks don't want that. They don't want to give up their land. Syria does not want to give up its land. What Turkey wants is to have a buffer zone between Turkey and Syria so that the thousands and thousands of refugees that left because of the war in modern Syria, uh, they want some kind of buffer right in through here so that they can replace these people in that buffer zone, about 30 kilometers, that kind of thing. The United States supported the Kurds because the Kurds helped us with the, um, um, well, with the uh, terrorists. What were the terrorists? The uh, Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, yeah. They helped us defeat Al-Qaeda. And so uh, the United States has been partial to the Kurds there for that. However, they didn't realize what the blowback would be because Turkey does not want to give up any of its land to the Kurds. And so the rub now is that uh, Finland and Sweden want to become members of NATO. Turkey is a member of NATO. And so for that reason, they don't want to give up their land, and so they won't vote for Finland and Sweden to become part of NATO. So what's going to happen, I'm afraid, is that uh, the United States will have to throw the Kurds under the bus, back out of that, let them know that they can have that 30-kilometer uh, buffer zone for the refugees, and then that way Turkey will then vote for the admission of Sweden and Finland. Yes, sir. Oh. And that's what he said. They're just trying to draw a line there. Right. So Syria doesn't go over there. They want about a 30 kilometer buffer zone from one end to the other of northern Syria so that Turkey can place these refugees there to live. They live in squalor and they need a place to live. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I brought this up because it was on my mind. The Russians are concerned because. They have a, um, a sea base there, seaport there in Syria. Syria gives them seaport. If it weren't for that, the Russians would not have any access to the Mediterranean. If they lose that, they lose all access to the Mediterranean. Turkey controls the Bosporus and the Dardanelles, so the Russians cannot go through there. So it's a complex issue over there right now. And they've had an earthquake. This is the most earthquake-ridden country in the world, Turkey. And uh, it's, uh, they've had a terrible earthquake right up there. Now let's go back into time like we're supposed to and go to the first century. Uh, we call this Asia Minor. You can see some of the different um, uh, provinces there. For example, the province of Galatia. Here's the province of Asia. This whole peninsula is called Asia Minor, 12 million square miles. This is where your first missionary journey actually begins. Notice that these churches that he's establishing are in southern Galatia. So you have a northern Galatia, which is more of a geographic region. You have a southern Galatia, which is uh, more of a political section. And then um, why don't we do something here? Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Not that I'm going to teach a lesson out of Galatians 1, but I'm going to uh, make reference to it. In uh, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1... 
Galatians 1 would be written around 61, 62, maybe 60, far up as 64 A.D. Uh, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, chapter 1, verse 1, but through Jesus Christ and the God and the Father, who raised him from the dead, to all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Well, here they are. He writes this letter to these southern churches. Now, that's a big debating point right there. To whom is the churches of Galatia? Were the, was it northern Galatia or southern Galatia? Well, my vote is for southern Galatia. I don't know of any churches up in northern Galatia that he had established, but we're going to study today him establishing congregation right here in southern Galatia, which is um, the focus of our attention in Acts chapter 13. So the Holy Spirit has sent these two, Barnabas and uh, Saul, and they take a helper with them by the name of John Mark, who's the cousin of Barnabas. And in so doing, they take their trip. Notice that they leave from Antioch of Syria. That's what got me off on this uh, Syria point right here. You got Antioch of Syria. But it's not long until they get to Antioch of Pisidia. So I've mentioned this several times to keep it straight in our minds. You've got an Antioch of Syria, you've got an Antioch of Pisidia. And we're going to be visiting Antioch of Pisidia in just a moment. We are leaving Antioch of Syria. Antioch of Syria is a great church, a great congregation of God's people. I mean, it's a combination of Jews, it's a combination of Gentiles, and they're preaching the gospel. Barnabas has been up there. The disciples were called Christian first at Antioch, Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. So it becomes a powerful congregation up there. In fact, the focus has begun to shift from the church at Jerusalem to the church at Antioch as we're in this portion of the book of Acts. And now all these missionary journeys, all three of them, start at Antioch of Syria. They will go through this particular area and they will return at Antioch of Syria. And the last one will be actually finished in Rome. Yes, sir. Right, right. Well, I think what the Bible is saying here is the emphasis now in Luke's writing of the book of Acts. The Luke, Luke is saying now the emphasis is in Antioch and he talks about the history there. So when I said that, I said that because of Luke's emphasis in Acts. Luke now emphasizes the work at Antioch. At first, it's the work emphasized at Jerusalem. Now, the church of Jerusalem is still a thriving, growing group of people. But now the focus in Acts is on the church at Antioch and the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church itself, which heretofore has been primarily the Jews. But now we're including the Gentiles as well. Yes, sir. Well, that's just another name that uh, he has. It's like Barnabas, son of consolation. Niger simply is a name that was given to him. It is a place name as well, so that may have something to do with it there. Yeah. So that may have something to do with it. Other than that, I don't know any more about him. In fact, the Bible doesn't say anything more about this Simeon other than what we read in this particular passage. I'm in chapter 13. He 
Well, that certainly talks about uh, the, the preaching in Antioch, the preaching at Antioch in which what was being done was uh, preaching to the Gentiles. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a good point Charlie makes, is especially in ancient times. It was not an easy trip for them to make this. Now we just get on a plane and we fly. But then, of course, they, they travel either by foot or by boat. And you see them leaving the harbor up there, and they head for Perga. And, uh, but we don't hear of anything going on at Perga. I don't hear of any, uh, anybody um, being converted at Perga. But yet um, he, they travel through the island of Cyprus, and there they come across this governor. And they also come across this fellow by the name of Bar-Jesus. He's also known as Elamus. And in so doing, he tries to thwart the preaching and teaching of the gospel. But yet Paul, as you see here in about verse 9, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord was upon him, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now we pause right there and just uh, summarize just for a brief second that he was trying to thwart the work of the gospel. But notice you might think, well, Barnabas should have been the one to step up here maybe and take the lead, but he wasn't. It was the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul causing him to step up here and take the lead, and this miracle takes place because of their thwarting of the gospel. When he saw the miracle, he saw the verification of the teaching of the Lord, and he wanted to obey, and he believes. Now, you understand that believe is sort of an uh, umbrella term, which means obedience to the gospel of Christ. When a person believes, his heart is changed by what he now knows, and he's motivated to do what God has told him to do, and that, of course, is to repent and to be baptized. Now, this becomes more obvious when we get into chapter 16, and we read about the Philippian jailer, uh, and we'll read about Crispus and others... Um, uh, like him, who in turn um, obey, and the Bible simply says they believe, but that means they repented and were baptized into Christ. Now Paul and his companions put out the sea from Paphos and began to Perga in Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now this becomes a particular issue. Uh, John Mark left the work. John Mark leaves the work and he goes... Uh, back home. Now, the question has always been, why did he do that? And the text doesn't tell us. It did cause contention with regard to Barnabas and Paul, because Barnabas wants to take John Mark on the second missionary journey, Acts chapter 15. But Paul says, no, he left us on the first journey. We're not going to take him on the second journey. So there was a problem there between them with regard to uh, the inclusion of John Mark. I don't know why he left. 
I read one commentary said uh, John Mark was homesick. He wanted to go home. Okay. I don't know. Uh, maybe John Mark was afraid. And that's a pretty popular view, that he saw the uh, situation with Elamus and Sergius Paulus and the miracle that took place with regard to Elis, Elamus. And he decided, I'm just not ready for this. I can't take this. And he went home. I don't know. I don't know. It could be any number of reasons that might have, uh, might have caused him to do this particular thing, to go back. But I think it's a good reference point in verse 13 uh, to remember, because it's going to come up again. And then later in the writings of Paul, Paul says, be sure to send John Mark. And so there is that reconciliation that evidently took place between them in this matter. This is not a matter of what to teach. It is a matter of expediency. Should we take him or not? So one decided yes, another decided no. So now instead of having one evangelistic team, we have two evangelistic teams. Barnabas takes John Mark and goes back to Cyprus. There in turn, Paul takes Silas and they go on the journeys that we see and are about to study. So I'm at about verse 13. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, came to Pergam Pamphylia, but John left them, returned to Jerusalem. But going out from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials said to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Well, we're in Pisidian Antioch. Now, you mentioned how, you remember how I mentioned about how great the church at Antioch of Syria was? Antioch of Pisidia is a different story. And we're going to see as we go along in this direction how different uh, this particular matter was. For him to get up there, he has to travel by foot. Now, again, the map is not very good. I'm sorry about that. That's about as good a map. Now, you have maps in the back of your Bibles. You can look those up and kind of trace these things along. But I thought this would be helpful to give us some context as to what we're saying, where we're going. But he's going up in elevation. When he goes to Pisidian Antioch, he's going up. They're hiking through some serious land, some hard hiking, and a lot of it's thick woods. And so naturally there would be the possibility of wild animals along the way or robbers along the way. Maybe that's what John Mark's afraid of. He's like, I don't want to go up there to Pisidian Antioch. I don't want to travel up there. They're 3,500 feet in elevation by now. And I don't want to go all the way up there. They've got to sleep at night out on the ground. I don't know that I want to do that. I'm just making suggestions as to what might have happened in the mind of John Mark. I don't know. But I know this. It was a treacherous trek up to Pisidian Antioch. And this might be <coughs> what Paul had mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he talks about suffering robbers along the way. Maybe this is what he has reference to in this particular matter. I do not know, but at any rate, it was not an easy journey to get there. As they get there, they go to the synagogue. This is where the Jews are assembled on the Sabbath day. As the sun goes down on Friday, they're assembling on the Sabbath, the Shabbat. And as they do, they are reading the Scripture. And what are they reading? The cantor is reading out of um, 
the law, and of course that would be the books of Moses and the prophets. And the synagogue officials said to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Maybe this was a custom, that if you had brethren, Jewish brethren, that would come along the way, and they came by, and they wanted uh, to visit, and they said, well, if you have something you'd like to say to encourage the congregation, then please go ahead and say it. But I have to warn you about this. If you tell a preacher to say a word, what are you going to get? You're going to get a sermon. And that's what we got here. They said, give us a word of exhortation. Of course, I'm sure they meant more than just a word. But he said, if you have any word of exhortation, then give it to us. And we have the longest sermon of Paul, the first sermon of Paul, and the only sermon of Paul from a synagogue. So this is a pretty important passage here. You got five sermons of Paul in the New Testament, but you got one here. This is the longest. This is the only one you get, as far as Luke is concerned in his recording, from a synagogue. So let's see what we have here. Mike. You're wrong. Now, let's, I'm, I'm you know I'm joking. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah. And they back. Yeah, yeah. Right. They weren't invited back. Now, we're going to see uh, you're right. The the door was shut for all practical purposes, but a lot of times people responded. And we're going to see how that happened somewhat here. But you're right, they had problems. Once they understood the content of Paul's uh, sermon, they would shut the door on them and travel behind them from place to place causing trouble. And so you're right about that. Now, the custom, I'm sure, changed from place to place. Synagogue service in Jerusalem might be a little different as far as its customs in Antioch, uh, Pisidia. Uh, that kind of thing. So I get the idea that this is sort of a custom to let somebody that's a visitor get up and, and speak. Yes, sir. Well, it was a worship service. It was more than information. It was a worship service. Now, I get the idea that Paul, Barnabas, Silas, are not going to worship. They are going as a spectator. When I go to a football game and I watch uh, uh, the fellows play football, I'm not, I used to, but I'm not now. I'm not a participant, I'm a spectator. There's a difference between a spectator and a participant. And that's what uh, I think they are. I don't think they're participating in worship. Now the day of that is over. Now the day is worshiping together with the church. So you raise a good question here. They don't know about that. All they know is the law. So far, that's right. 
they, sent, they paid the Jews at the synagogue, they don't know about this yet. That's why Paul's taking advantage of the opportunity. When this guy says, now, if you men have something you would like to say to encourage the congregation, he's going to take advantage of that opportunity. That's a golden opportunity. Once again, it's Paul that stands up and gives the sermon and not Barnabas. And I have to say, Barnabas is such a good guy. Barnabas has been a Christian longer than Saul has. Barnabas is the driving uh, force and teacher at Antioch of Syria. He's the one that got Saul to begin with. Barnabas could have said, now wait a minute, wait a minute. I've been at this longer than you have. You kind of sit down and watch me. Do he didn't say that. He was a good guy. He didn't try to take advantage of the situation. He realized that God was leading Paul by the Holy Spirit, and it was time for Paul to step forward, and he did. Yes, ma'am. That Sergius Paulus yes. summoned Barnabas and Paul. Mm-hmm. Elamus, yeah, could have been. Because he had a lot of authority mm -hmm. and he wanted to run the church there. Yes. Well, he was a magician. Yes. Maybe, you know, John Mark put too much emphasis on that, was afraid of that superstitious type of thing, and who knows? That could very well have been. And being young. And being young as well. Being young as well. Yes, sir. Well, of course, Barnabas was uh, at one time in the Jewish religion, but I think you're right by the fact that Paul is more qualified. This is the guy. Uh, this is the guy that God chose because of his characteristics, because of his ability. God wants this man to do that. Now, that's what causes me to say, I really admire Barnabas because he did not resist that. Um, he was willing to take second place graciously. Okay, if God wants Paul to do it, Paul step up and do it, just so long as it gets done and gets done right. And I think that's Barnabas's idea. And I have to pat the man on the back for that. I think he's a gracious man, Barnabas. Everything I read about him is good. And so I just want to point that out in passing about Barnabas. So now we have this great sermon. So they've, they've given him the opportunity. Um, as I said... This is the longest sermon of uh, Paul we've got, and the only one from a synagogue. Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, now he stood up to speak. Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount sat down to speak. Uh, customs are different from one place to another. Certainly nothing wrong in someone sitting down to teach or to preach. I have a friend of mine who's recently had some reversal in health and that kind of thing, and the elders wanted him to keep preaching, and so he had to sit down to preach. And it, it bothered him. It upset him because he had to sit down and do the preaching. I said, well, Jesus sat down and preached. Why would that bother you if you have the opportunity? Here, Paul has the opportunity. He stood up to preach. Men of Israel, you know, who fear God, listen. And you who fear God. We've got Jews and we've got proselytes here, probably. Maybe not, uh, maybe they're God-fearing people, 
they are there. Cornelius was a God-fearing man. He wasn't really a Jew. He had never accepted Judaism, but he was very positive, positively um, uh, positive toward Judaism. But I think what we have here, either proselytes, they fear God, men of Israel, and you who fear God. Listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. So what do we got here? Another historical sermon. Who else gave us a historical sermon like that? Stephen did, chapter 7. And you got to think now, when they're sitting there listening to this sermon about their forefather, they got to be sitting there nodding their head. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And so Stephen chose to approach the subject in that way. God, by his arm, reference to his power, led them out of the land of Egypt. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years, verse 19. So, we're looking at about, now the numbers are a little difficult sometimes, but we're looking at about 400 years there in Egyptian bondage. We're looking at about 40 years in the wilderness wanderings. We're looking at about 10 years in addition to that with regard to the land of the conquest and Joshua taking the land by the power of God from the Canaanites. So we're looking at about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Samuel was the last of the judges, one of the great prophets, Samuel. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. I learned that now from the New Testament. I don't think I learned that from the Old Testament. He was a king for 40 years. And you know, it could be Saul said, hey, that's my name, Saul. I came from the tribe of Benjamin. Just like King Saul did. Very popular, famous tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. The smallest of the 12 tribes, but it was a very popular tribe. Saul was a popular king at one time. Saul, now Paul the apostle, Paul his Roman name, said, hey, I was named that too, you know. I came from Benjamin. And uh, uh, it's sort of like a namesake for me. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, a son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, 23, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Great sermon. What is the strategy behind this sermon? As I said, there are five. The strategy behind this sermon is, go and read it and analyze it. As a preacher, I think about these sermons. How did he do it? The way he's doing this is, God's involved in this history. We got a people of history, and God's sort of leading this people of history along for a purpose. And God is leading these people along, and he's made a promise. And he has fulfilled that promise, and the fulfillment of that promise is Jesus. You see the promise made in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
I'm going to build you a house that will stand forever, God said to David. So he brings David up, and he says in verse 23, Now David was a man who do all the will of God. He's a man that walks after God's own heart. From the descendants of this man, that is David, verse 23, According to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. So his approach to the matter in the sermon, God's working through history. God's bringing this thing along for a purpose. God is bringing these people out of Egyptian bondage and wandering in the wilderness and giving them the land of Canaan for a reason. God's involved in the purpose. God's involved in the history. And they would agree with that. Now, Stephen's approach was different. If you remember Stephen's approach in chapter 7, his approach to the history was, you guys have always rejected the leader God has given you. You've rejected this one. You've rejected the prophets. You've always rejected the leader that God has given, and now you've rejected his Christ, the Messiah. And they didn't like it, so they stoned him. So his historical approach was from a different perspective, chapter 7. His historical approach from chapter 7 was, you've rejected, look at your history. You look at the history and look how that historically you've acted and reacted to the leaders God has given and the leadership God has given you rejected. Paul's approach to the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch is different. He says, now God had a purpose in all this. God is bringing all this together for a reason. I believe that. I believe that God is involved in the lives of people, in the lives of nations. And he brings them up and he puts them down. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 4, I told you about Syria. And I told you about Russia. And I've told you about these nations like the Kurds. God can bring them up and God can bring them down. God moves in the lives of people and is involved in the history of mankind. I got some hands going somewhere. Yes, sir. Well, I think this is it. Uh, Mike, you ask a good question. This is the point. Now, this is the goal of the purpose. This is the fulfillment of the promise. Now, let's notice what has happened with regard to Jesus and look at the reaction afterwards. I said, please come back and tell us more about this. Now, I hadn't got that far yet, but that's what you're going to see. And it's quite amazing for a congregation of people to say, would you come back and preach for us again? Generally, you'll never... <laughs> You already preached that sermon once. We don't want to hear it again. Please come back and tell us more about this, is the reaction which you're going to get from the people of the city in Antioch. However, it has a bad ending. Somebody else had some questions? Yes, ma'am. I think I had a senior moment. <laughs> All right. You think about that. Yes, sir. Right. Right, right. Did they know about Jesus at this time? Probably they may have heard. I don't know that. They probably have heard about John, but I don't know about Jesus. Maybe so. Maybe they have heard about the work of Jesus. Maybe they have heard what Jesus did and the resurrection. Maybe they have. I don't know. I just, I just wonder if they 
I, I, I suspect they had. I suspect that they knew about John uh, uh, and the work of John. But we'll have to just let it go at that. I'm, I don't know. Yes, sir. I was thinking about Barnabas. All right. Mm, yeah. Well, sure. We stood up. Right. Well, it's sort of, yeah, it's a communication thing, isn't it? And so they would look up to somebody and respect somebody would stand up and declare to them the good news. Right. Yeah. And so standing up was certainly a posture of teaching and an effective way to teach. I think that's certainly true. Sir? The audience would be able to hear a lot better when the person Yeah. Yeah, it would be more effective that way, I suppose. And so that certainly is true. Somebody else. Yes, sir? Back in Leviticus 7, he, he named these seven, Moses named these seven nations that they destroyed and said they were greater and stronger than the Israelites. Well, that Israel couldn't have done it without God. That's so true. Israel couldn't have done it without God. He builds them up and he takes them down. Let me read another verse or two before they set me down, okay? I'm in verse 24. After John had proclaimed... I see, they may have known about John. I suspect they did. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. That's what it was. It was a baptism of repentance. The baptism of the Great Commission is a baptism of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to his word. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. Now it brought about forgiveness, the intended purpose for which it had, but at the same time it was temporary to prepare for the baptism of the Great Commission. And in 25, and while John was completing his course, it's a good way to put it, when John was fulfilling his mission there, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming. After me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie, verse 25. I have to admire John. Multitudes are coming out to hear John preach. Have to admire John. And yet John says, hey, I'm not the guy. You know, I think if it had been any lesser man, a lesser man said, hey, yeah, I think I can do this. I think I can do this. I've often wondered what it would be like to carry the football right up the middle of Texas Stadium and thousands of people cheering Go, go, go. I think I could jump over the goalpost if I had enough people screaming at me saying, you're great, you're great. But John wasn't that way. John says, I'm not the guy. I'm not the Messiah. I came to prepare for the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family and there's that coordinating conjunction again. The, those among you who fear God. Now that was the group I'm interested in right there. Are they proselytes? Are they God-fearing people? They were. What extent, to what extent were they? To us, the message of this salvation has been sent. The message has come. Jesus is the reason. Not, not for the season. You see that. Jesus read for the no. No, no. Jesus is the reason for salvation. Jesus is the reason, the only reason that we can have forgiveness. And the message has been sent. 
So he's gotten to his point here. Brethren, verse 26. Well, I get excited when I read these sermons and I, I try to analyze, how did they do that? How did they say that? What's the best way to say it and what's the best way to do it? And that's what we're looking at now. We're looking at a great sermon of the Bible. Now, one of my favorites would have to be Acts chapter 17, but I'll have to wait a lot later. But I like this one. I like what he did here. It helps me understand the purpose, the mission of God in sending Christ to the world. We will mark Acts 13, 26. And when I come back uh, at this particular point in the Bible, we'll pick up there again.